This morning we're looking at money and power. They do go together. They're not entirely the same. Perhaps those of you who've been fans of Downton Abbey will notice how there's an interesting, uh, you know, that charts a time when actually new forms of money appear, which are different to established landed power in terms of the nobility. And so it's not, you know, money and power don't, sometimes people could be quite powerful while their economic footprint decreases. Or the great Gatsby, um, uh, no matter how much he tries, Jay Gatsby can't with money ever be quite the same as the old money on whichever egg is the egg that he's not on in Great Gatsby. Um, or uh, the uh, Kevin Spacey's despicable character in the House of Cards um, speaks this way about the difference. Speak about politicians in Washington DC. That politician chose money over power. In this town, a mistake nearly everyone makes. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. So there you go, money and power. They go together, not quite the same. Power can come in more guises than simply access to economic resources. Status, tradition, good looks, good health, intellect, uh, religious power, um, integrity, there's a certain kind of moral power, um, ethos, as Aristotle would call it. Um, there's even artistic, so constitutes, there's an artistic power that you can move someone with words, um, uh, you know, the, the pathos, again, to use Aristotle, you can move someone and have a power over them, even if you have neither money uh, nor status. Um, but they do overlap a lot, and they bring together, money and power bring together privileges of various kinds, duties as well, you know, that, that not only is there great power, but there's great responsibility, to quote classic Spider-Man. Um, temptations, you know, again, even the poor artist, when they can hold an audience in the, in the palm of their hand as they uh, read, a, read a poem or recite a play or play a song, there's, there's, a, there's temptations there to manipulate that, aren't there? Um, now, at, at our particular time in history, um, especially in, in Western countries, but not, not exclusively, there's a trend in politics and culture and scholarship, university, to, to reduce everything almost entirely to power or to money. And so you can get people say, oh, that, that trend, that movement, that uh, religious um, uh, community, uh, that just exists to meet this economic need that the people had at this time. You know, that group rose or that group fell for these economic reasons due to uh, supply, due to demand, due to access to natural resources, due to uh, the uh, uh, dissatisfaction of the poor or the reassertion of power of the rich. You know, so, so everything could be reduced to that. So suddenly marriage and art and religion are just economic uh, illusions. So that, that, that can be a ten tendency. Or everything can be reduced to politics. Everything's about power. You know, oh, you thought you were having a good time. No, you were engaged in a complex power dialectic um, uh, that you may not have even been aware of, which shows how powerful it is. You know what? This trend in politics and, and, and scholarship is actually a really helpful one, as we'll see, and it, there's a theme throughout Scripture that really um, uh, should mean that we should not be surprised by that. Of course human beings, um, because we're in relationships and we need to survive and we want to be secure and, and then we're sinful and we want to be powerful and comfortable, 
Of course, we will make decisions for a bunch of reasons that we're not entirely honest with even ourselves about. That actually, you know what? I'm kind of half doing that for what I get out of it, yeah? So, however, it, is a, it can be overly simplistic, um, as we'll reflect on as well. It's not a full story. Ideas and spirituality and good motives and relations. There's other things in life <laughs> than money and power, which is, again, part of what we'll be thinking about today. The way I want to start is first by thinking about our Lord Jesus himself. So let's think about what Christianity shows us about um, wealth and power, handling wealth and power. Um, and, and then we'll look at uh, a letter written by Jesus' biological brother, from, from, from a human point of view. His brother James wrote a letter that touches on money and power a whole lot. So that's what we'll be looking at in the next half hour or so. So first then, first heading, let's think about how Jesus is presented to us. And I want to begin by looking at how Jesus is... Um, predicted to be, before he came to earth, in the prophet Isaiah, 8th century prophet, has a series of songs that have been grouped together called the servant songs that promise a coming um, spirit-anointed servant of God. You might want to have a look at some of these passages as we work our way through. You can just Google up Isaiah, I-S-A-I-A-H, 42, Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, God says, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So a powerful one who brings justice, whom God is pleased with. But notice on the one hand, this powerful one who brings justice, who is meek and gentle, verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. The second servant song is in Isaiah 49. And we'll just read two verses from that. Isaiah 49, again, predicting the coming of Jesus. Isaiah um, uh, says, um, uh, taking on um, uh, the work, so kind of, speaking as if he is this coming servant, so taking on the persona of the coming servant. In verse 3, this coming servant says about God, God said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendour. But I have said I've laboured to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. So one who God has chosen, who will feel frustrated in their work, who will seem like their work comes to no good end, and has to trust God to bring about good from hardship and rejection. That theme starts to become more prominent in the last two sermon songs. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50 and verse 4, again taking on the, the, the servants, coming servants' words um, in his own voice. The Sovereign Lord, verse 4, 50 verse 4, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Again, that gentleness. He wakens me morning by morning. He makes my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I've not been rebellious. I haven't drawn back. Listen to this, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So this powerful anointed one by God who um, is meek and gentle and seeking to bring about justice and blessing, who is rejected and suffers um, and looks to God for vindication. And that all prepares us for the most famous and longest of the servant songs, Isaiah 52, 
And verse 13, see, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Chosen by God, rejected, and yet will bring about God's good purpose. 53 verse 1. He who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds... We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was there like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand and the suffering of his soul. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great and he'll divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's an amazing, understandably famous passage because it's beautiful, because it describes what Jesus came to do. One who was chosen by God, uh, unremarkable, in fact, suffered in the world. His suffering, in fact, this passage shows, is a, a substitution to bring about atonement and rescue and redemption for people and will in the end be vindicated by God. It's amazing, this passage predicting Jesus before he came. And it's amazing that it wasn't, uh, it seems, as best we can tell, it wasn't expected and integrated into Jewish expectation in the first century. They didn't have a really strong, clear idea that this would be the Messiah. And so they weren't expecting a suffering Messiah. And so that then makes Jesus coming to fulfil it surprising in its time and then obvious afterwards. It's an interesting example of that, um, that prophecy, surprising at its time and obvious afterwards. To summarise that teaching, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says that uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through him we might become rich. He was rich, but he used his riches to serve us through his poverty, that we might be made rich in him. Or Philippians chapter 2 speaks about Jesus, who as God the Son was in very nature God, didn't have to grasp at the power of being God, and yet made himself nothing willingly, became a servant to God and to us, even to death, death on the cross for us. Um, and as a result, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. Jesus is rich and powerful, spiritually speaking, and yet became poor and weak. 
he identified with those who were poor and weak and even those who were guilty and sinful. He served us and he saved us. And he even served and saved those who are rich and uh, strong in this world and don't realise how poor and weak they really are in God's sight. Even the oppressor he had compassion for. He prayed on the cross, God forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Amazing that a victim to pray for an oppressor to see their corruption and need. Um, he identified with us, he saved and served us so that we might be truly, in the most important way, enriched and empowered through him. And so restored and glorified with him. That's the Christian message and the Christian hope. Now, if that's what God is like and what God has done, then those who worship this God ought to be shaped by reflecting that character and emulating that service. You know, that should mark the lives of those who have been, who worship this God, right? And you could see that theme by, say, looking in the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah has a lot to say about that, the way then power and wealth should be used by those who serve this kind of God, or Amos or Micah or on could go. We could look at Jesus' teaching in his parables and his example and his rebukes about wealth and power. Man, look, when you start looking through this lens, and you know, perhaps if you are doing some subjects or form some friendships with people who are big on this kind of economic Marxist analysis of things or a power critique, when you start looking at the Bible through that lens, it's everywhere. My goodness, the Bible is engaged with it all the time, a critique of the structures and motives and problems of power and wealth. It's everywhere. Um, uh, and we're going to look at one example, a great example, the book of James, Jesus' biological brother James. I'm just going to surf through James for the rest of our time together because he has a lot to say on this topic. He does a, a biblical critical theory uh, <laughs> of power and wealth and challenges us uh, as those who would, um, uh, would follow Jesus to allow the character and the work of Jesus to shape us. And I hope it gives you an insight into what Christianity at its best ought to be. Even if Christianity at its worst, almost ordinary, falls short of it. Yeah. Um, so this gives you an insight into what Christianity at its best aims to be. The first um, explicit mention of power and wealth in, in the Bible book of James is in chapter 1 verse 9. It actually speaks to... Christians as brothers and sisters, kind of spiritual brothers and sisters, that is, um, and compares two types of Christians, the one in humble circumstances and the wealthy one. You know, perhaps even here, if we looked at your family histories and, and, and so on, some of you come from wealthy backgrounds, some of you come from a, a much less wealthy backgrounds, so it could address the two types of people here in this room. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. <laughs> it's interesting, there are two, two ways you can apply the gospel. On the one hand, if you're um, in humble circumstances in this world, remember your high position as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that chapter two. That actually you've got a position that is far greater than merely wealth and status. A child of God in Christ Jesus, yeah? Take pride in the good sense. Some languages have two words for pride. Like in French, you've got orgueil and, uh, and fierté, you know, and, and fierté is like good pride. Like, I'm, I'm proud of myself. Look what I did. I tied my shoelaces. Whereas orgueil is, is the sort of more boastful, vain pride. So this is the good type, yeah? It's like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is a good thing that's good to feel good about, yeah? 
Um, the rich person also should take pride, but not in their wealth or their power. But by remembering that actually, you know what? Um, I can rejoice in the fact that I see the, the passing, fleeting nature of wealth. Yeah, for the, uh, so it's almost an ironic pride. I am wise enough by God's grace to realise this stuff doesn't matter. It'll pass away like a wildflower, those tenets, echoing Isaiah 40. For the sun rises with the scorching heat, withers the plant, it blossoms fail, its beauty is destroyed. I mean, also echoes the parable of the sower, doesn't it? Jesus' um, parable. Um, in the same way, the rich man will fade away even as he goes about his business, even as you're doing your big deals with your, um, you know, your handshakes and your Zoom calls and your flies to Hong Kong and your cufflinks and your seven-course dinners or whatever it is, even as you're um, in, in the government houses and meeting with the politicians and, um, and on the inside track, mingling with celebrities, you're fading away. And you realise it, which makes you truly wise and makes you powerfully free from the lies of wealth and power. It's a great little passage, isn't it? Yeah? Great little passage. We'll come back to some of these things in chapter 2. But first, let's move on further on in chapter 1, verse 21. James chapter 1, verse 21. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Check out that verse in the King James Version. It's hilarious. Um, uh, And humbly accept the word of God planted in you, which can save you. God's word has saved you. He gave us birth, 118, by his word. That's the word of the gospel of Jesus' salvation. But don't merely listen to it. And so deceive yourself. Do what the word says. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Look in the mirror, done my shave, left a huge big weird patch of just kind of unshaved whiskers there. Huh, should get rid of that. And then just go off to uni and then you're there in the tutorial all the time and everyone's just looking at this kind of patch of unshaved, you know. Um, trying to concentrate on you, but just constantly looking at the... <laughs> um, uh, no, the word is like a mirror that shows you your own flaws where you're not reflecting the servant of the Lord. So when you look at it and it shows you that, act on it by the same grace that gave you birth. Now grow up in that word as well. He goes on to apply this sharper as you... Um, Verse 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. It's a good process, you see. It's freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it. He'll be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers his, himself religious, holy, zealous, passionate, gospel-centered, kingdom-focused, whatever you want to call it, devout, um, but does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and is religious and is worthless. Okay, so there you go. True religion. Shut up. Secondly, uh, religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, uh, make your words few, be, have integrity in your heart and life, be unpolluted, and care for those who are disenfranchised, who are powerless and poor. Widows and the orphans, especially in societies without social security, <coughs> where your family networks are your social security, if a widow has no husband, if a kid has no parents, if they're set loose in the world, true religion cares. God cared for us, though he was rich, for our sake became poor. I should care for them. If I claim to be religious, I should care for those in need. I should watch my tongue, I should be godly, but I should care for those in need. That's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. That should be something that characterises Christianity. Now, we've got to be careful as we come into chapter 2, remembering that 
how you deliver charity. Yes, charity is the bare minimum. And actually, Christians in general, religious people, but Christians in general, tend to be statistically more charitable than those who aren't. Which is nice to know, and you'd hope that it would be the case, wouldn't you? You'd hope that that would mark Christians. Um, it seems to be, from some research I've read, that even Christians can tend to be, for all the accusations of intolerance, tend to be largely more comfortable with having different ethnicities and lifestyles living next door to them on their street. You know? Um, that, that there's a charitable um, that should mark Christianity. However, as chapter 2 is about to warn us, we've got to be careful that uh, there's more to caring for those in need than simply charity. Charity can come with strings. Charity can be kind of a... Uh, uh, can actually preserve an imbalance of power, <laughs> even as you provide, and kind of almost perpetuate a neediness in the other person. It's good, um, and Christians are good at this, but, but there's a little bit more, as we'll see. So as we turn to chapter 2 to think about that a little bit more, I do want to just ask you, how are you going with, as you begin to earn money and have a little bit of power, perhaps, in the world, do you consider, are you going to build into your habits of life and mind and budget concern for those in need? Are you going to build that into your voting when uh, one political party promises to do more to make a good society that cares for those in need and another promises to make your uh, tax bill less and your uh, investment portfolio healthier, when it comes two weeks out from the, the election, perhaps you're voting for the nobler political party, the night before the election you start thinking, oh man, actually that, that investment is languishing a bit and <laughs> the budget is tight. The morning of the election, as you're eating your democracy sausage, you're going, yeah, you know what, in the end, it's good to be sensible. And we'll be able to help people more if we just... <laughs> and, and suddenly our priorities can shift, perhaps almost always, to what suits us rather than what serves others. Okay, so chapter two. James warns now about something deeper than simply lack of charity, and that is favouritism. My brothers, and, and as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who was the servant, remember, don't show favouritism. Suppose... A man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. We welcome them both. There you go. See, we're charitable. We welcome them both. All are welcome here at our church. But then what else do we do? We say to the rich man, oh, it's bless you. It's so humbled to have you here. So humble. Here, here's a seat for you. Come and sit next to, you know, up the front here. And then you say to the poor person, hi, great to have you. Here's the, you know, you can sit up the back there. You know, maybe if they're, you know, they've got other reasons. We'll keep an eye on them as well. Can you just keep an eye on that person? That kind of stuff. Different treatment, isn't there? You may not even realise you're showing this different treatment. What does he say? Verse 4, haven't you become discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Ouch. Listen, my dear brothers. Hasn't God chosen those who are rich in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the... Sorry, poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Take pride in your high position, remember? It's in, in the kingdom of God that the poor share. But you're even sold at the poor, verse 6. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Why are you sucking up to them? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. He said, didn't go commit adultery. He also said, don't commit murder. If you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom 
because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Favoritism, discrimination. This can be deliberate, consciously, deliberately, I like you, I don't like you because of what you give me and what you don't give me. Or worse, ideological discrimination. I like you because I think you are actually a better type of human being and you are a worse, less intelligent, less valuable kind of human being. So it can be deliberate, can be ideological. But discrimination often is either, is it? It's neither consciously whatever it is, classist, sexist, racist, ableist, whatever. It's, um, it's sort of less conscious, less deliberate, accidental, structural, kind of intuitive. You just don't notice sometimes. You just don't see. <laughs> um, you know, my 13 year old as we were driving back from South Arm noticed a church sign and he went, there's a typical church sign. There's the, <laughs> there's the white family with two kids. And it's a really, there you go. He, he, was, he noticed that and he said, don't even realise it. We just want to be a friendly, welcoming church for community. And what's a friendly, welcoming church? Well, it's friendly, upper middle class, white people with kids. You know, it'd be a bit tragic to say, come to our church, we've got lots of single people. That's a bit depressing, isn't it? <laughs> no one thinks that, do they? But isn't it funny how we can accidentally show a favouritism based on marriage status, for example, or whether you have kids or not, for example. Yeah, it comes in and it's not necessarily conscious. And so we actually have to go deliberately be aware of it, to look into the word, show us this warning, and then not forget what we've seen. But ask the question, as I plan study groups, do I do a quick calculation and go, that one person's not smart, that person maybe is a bit awkward, um, that person's English isn't great, and slowly curate my study group or group project to suit me and neglect others. There's, there's lots of little ways. As we organise the church social event, do we subtly engineer it so it's a certain way and not another way? There's lots of little ways we do this. Um, this goes beyond what used to be called noblesse oblige, which is a good thing and a Christian thing to some extent, which says rich, noble people are obliged to do good. The problem with noblesse oblige is it brings with it a power imbalance, right? Part of my status becomes I go to the charity ball and look at how good I am giving money to other things. It goes beyond that because that can be patronising and controlling, whereas being aware of discrimination actually thinks how do I lift up others? And so that's where some of the kind of modern concerns around things like discrimination should be something Christians are eager to learn from, yeah? Because you know what? Some of these discriminations, whether it's ableism or various kinds of subtle versions of exclusion of different cultures or sexes or whatever, you won't see it. If you're not affected by it, you don't see it. And so you should be eager to hear from others to go, hey, could you explain to me your experience of life so that I can see things from your point of view um, so that I can be less discriminatory, yeah? Favoritism. Um, James chapter 2 verses 14 to 17 uses the mirror, uh, don't forget what you see in the mirror type, a challenge again. Just It challenges us to work out our faith in practice. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother and sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, bless you, but does nothing to help their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. 
if I'm justified by the God, just and merciful God, then I'll be concerned for justice and mercy in the lives of others. Yeah? Show me your faith in the God who is just and who has justified you and is merciful by being merciful and just to others. How are you going with that, those of you who are Christians? Those of you who are interested in Christianity, this is what Christianity at its best is shooting for. When it speaks truth to power and wealth, this is what it says at its best. James chapter 3 uh, to 4.10 is a long passage talking about the heart. The true wisdom in 3 verse 17, coming from heaven, is pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere and peacemaking and so on. That a heart should shape someone who is truly wise and truly knows God. That just, just then flows out, as Jesus says, what makes you clean is what comes out of your heart. Yeah? A changed heart... Is, is, is moved in, desires certain things, is moved by certain things, slowly affects action. In chapter 4, that gets applied in a pretty rebukey way. It's pretty blunt. Again, we're looking in the mirror, and there's a fair bit of stuff that needs some work, a bit of an extreme makeover as we look in this mirror. What causes you to fight? What causes quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and cover, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. See you later. Um, don't, uh, uh, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God and so on. It's a rebuke to say, yeah, okay, sure. Sometimes quarrels come from misunderstandings, sure. Sometimes they come from insecurities, Yes, that's true too. So, you know, let's work at understanding each other. Let's do our own work to kind of overcome those insecurities. But so quickly, misunderstanding and insecurities get made worse by mixed motives, by my agenda, my wealth, my power, my ego, my status, my reputation. And suddenly things escalate all the more because it's no longer just about the issue or even what you meant and really did mean. Um, or how I initially felt just a little bit hurt in my feelings. Now it's also about my, my power, my pride, my, in the bad sense, and so on. Yeah? Um, and so it's a real challenge to say, hey, if we're going to deal with this favouritism stuff and really be charitable people and humble people, that will involve a lot of honesty about ourselves, a lot of real honesty about ourselves, yeah? Because so quickly, <laughs> in chapter one he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. All of us, you know, not just, not just white men, all of us, but, but definitely white men, all of us can be quick to become angry and slow to listen. All of us can be fragile in the sense that as soon as something pushes a button and makes us feel defensive, we shut down and stop listening. How are you going to love others and welcome others and care for others and, and then knock down favouritism where it shouldn't be if you're quick to say, hey, no, hang on a second, that's not fair. Slow to become angry. Slow to speak, quick to no. You haven't. That's not the way I'd put it. <laughs> but instead, to slow down and to listen, to watch the heart that is quick to fight and quarrel, to be quick to listen instead, to seek a whole character change, not just financial donations. Oh, when I become rich and wealthy, I'll give to charity. No, no. Someone who also with their employees, also with their family, also at the the, the footy ground, is marked by the same love, service, humility. Yeah. 
This is one reason as well why there is a sense to potentially, you know, having other structures in place like, you know, Australia is a, a loosely socialist, uh, democr capitalist democracy. We, you know, have a social security system, it's pretty good. Um, why you might have anti-discrimination policies or even, I don't know, quotas and things like this. The, the logic of that at its best is to go, let's be honest, the human heart is so tangled that if we entirely wait and rely for human beings to spontaneously do the best, not only is it too complex to figure it all out, but we'll find ways to avoid doing it. And so a bit of wealth redistribution within, you know, some sensible bounds and perhaps even some policies that kind of force us to look outside of ourselves can, can recognise just that. As Jesus says of divorce, Moses allowed this because our hearts are hard. Sometimes you need laws and regulations because our hearts are hard. Yeah. James chapter 4 comes back to the passing away like a wildflower in verse 13 and following. Great little passage for any of you guys. Um, I mean, in a sense, in the West, we're all wealthy, even the poor. But, I mean, you guys are on a track as university-educated people to become the more wealthy still, in at least one way or another, in the forms of wealth or power. Yeah? If not wealthy, then powerful in terms of cultural capital. Um, then, um, uh, then you need to hear what chapter 4, 13 to 17 says. Don't boast about your power to rule your life. Today and tomorrow I'll go here, I'll do this, then I'll do that, and I'll build this, then I'll save for this, and I'll sell that, then I'll... Whoa, you're fading away as you're going about your business. Yeah. If the Lord's will, yeah, he gives, he takes away. Naked you came from your mother's womb, naked you'll depart in the grave. Yeah, watch it. Restrain. Restrain all your doings. Even those of you who become influential or popular or, or wealthy or powerful. Restrain all of that with actually eyes just, I'm just a servant. Rejoice in your low position, in other words. And then a final rebuke comes in chapter 5, the last passage about wealth and power. Um, this is kind of, it's like James takes on an Old Testament prophet speech. And it's like he's not necessarily talking to his church anymore. It's like he's kind of talking like the prophets, like, you know, you'll get the prophets rebuking Moab. And I don't know if that prophecy ever reached Moab. So it's kind of a little bit like, uh, imagine what God would say to Moab if they ever read this. You know, it's a bit of a uh, speech act, as they say. So here's similarly, I think to some extent James is talking about the them, but he's doing that within the hearers of the Christians. For those who are complicit with that and those who are victims of that. So it's kind of rebuking the worst of the oppressor but in a way that actually comforts the person who's, who is being oppressed and goes, yes, God sees, God knows, so I don't have to become vengeful and full of nihilistic rage. God sees, God knows. But it also helps the person who may not be that bad, but is kind of part of the system. Ooh, am I a bit that? Listen to how he goes. It's pretty ferocious. Now listen, chapter 5, you rich people, weep and wail because the misery that's coming upon you, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Look, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. The wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing to you. Whew! Fierce. Three quick challenges for us then, as we're listening on this. 
Um, so first, if, if you're experiencing any of these things, if you have the dirtbag landlord or the unjust employer, God sees. Yeah? If you had the, the dad or the stepdad or the toxic gran who really made your childhood hell, the bully at school, God sees. But now let's think about us as potentially complicit. Three challenges here. The first one is luxury and wealth, fattening ourselves up. Now, you can't, you can't be poor if you're not. It becomes a little bit of a play act for your own conscience sake. So you just gotta own the fact you're wealthy and you're not gonna help anyone just by play acting poorer than you are. However, watch that and aim for the best, most pure version of Puritan frugality in the Protestant work ethic. Aim to be a person who is less concerned with going everywhere, being everywhere and having everything and is more concerned with giving others. Just watch the luxury thing. You can't make yourself poor if you're not, but watch that endless pursuit of luxury and comfort and wealth. You just don't need it to live a good life. Second challenge, pay the wages. <laughs> pay the wages of the worker. The New Testament points out that the person whose cash flow is small, the Old Testament says it a lot, who, um, whose day-by-day -day existence or is running a small business, they are vulnerable to you paying things on time. Very soon you'll be a person who might delay the payment of invoices because it suits tax or cash flow. Or just you got distracted and you forgot to pay the invoice. Now, some people are dependent upon you paying that invoice in a timely manner and would love it if you paid it as soon as you received it. It's a simple, simple thing, yeah? But it's a great thing. I'm just conscious I've got a music student, at least one music student here. And that also involves, especially those in really vulnerable freelance, like music and, and journalism and graphic design, we often go, well, we're giving them some exposure. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll get them an opportunity to you know, raise awareness about their work. <laughs> you may have massive lot of gigs in the summer and then nothing through the winter or whatever it is. And so again, paying people properly and well, yeah, is a really great thing you can do. And then the third challenge, um, a third challenge is actually being complicit in violence and murder, verse six. Condemned and murdered innocent people. Um, in our voting, in our purchasing, in our advocacy, we get to perhaps play a part in exposing actual violence and corruption and so on. We should care. I'm not telling, there's no easy person to vote for. Uh, there's no easy party to vote for in Australia. However, Christians should feel terrible when they feel compelled to vote for the Liberal Party for the evidence of actual corruption and complicity with things like uh, toxic industries, gambling or alcohol. You should feel terrible about that, yeah? Even if they go, you know what, for various reasons, I'm gonna vote Liberal. And we could do that with any other party too, hey? We, we should care about the systems of violence that we're a part of. We may not be able to do a lot beyond pray, but sometimes we get a chance to. Some of you will be in the room where it happens and you get to have a say on doing what's right rather than doing what helps the shareholders of the bottom line. We're out of time. I hope that's, I mean, this is exciting and kind of overwhelming, isn't it? So go back to Jesus, ask for his mercy, thank him for his gentleness and look forward to the day when he makes all things good. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us as sinners. Thank you that you do have mercy on even the complicit and the oppressor, even the, uh, the vengeful and selfish oppressed. All of us, uh, 
you are gentle and kind. You see and you will make all things right. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.